Our text this morning is Exodus 18, chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. And I would like to read the passage in its entirety because I suspect that it's unfamiliar to uh, some of you. It's one of those passages that we're inclined to read right through quickly so we can get to the other side. But we would miss a great deal if we do. This is the word of the Lord. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife, Zipporah, his father-in-law, Jethro, received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the desert where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. Kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who treated Israel arrogantly. This Jethro, uh, thus, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. And as I said, this appears at first glance to be a fairly unremarkable text. But there's more here than meets the eye. Uh, Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, said, All Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God, and is profitable for instruction, correction, and to teach us to be righteous, to be good. Uh, the Scripture to which he refers is the Old Testament. Because the New Testament was not yet written. It was being written as Paul wrote these words. So Paul is referring here to the Old Testament when he says all scripture is profitable. Uh, St. Augustine, a 4th century Christian, puts a, a little different uh, point to it. He, he says that it really makes little difference how we interpret a passage as long as our interpretations are consonant with Scripture. In other words, are consistent with truth as it's taught elsewhere in the Scripture. What matters is that whatever interpretation we give to a passage, we follow out the intention of the author to produce charity. That, of course, is the old word for love. And then he amplifies. He says, every text ought to help us fulfill the great commandment. 
And the great commandment, of course, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So our task this morning is to understand this text in such a way that it leads us to love God and our neighbor even more. And our neighbor is the next person that we meet. Now, there are two questions that came to mind when I first looked at this passage. The first is, what does this story contribute to the narrative of the Exodus? Why is it here? And then secondly, what difference does it make? That's a so what question. How does this text lead us into love? Now, the early chapters of Exodus supply the answer to the first question. As you know, the story of Moses actually begins when he's 40 years of age. He had lived in Egypt for 40 years. He was a member of nobility. He was the adopted son of an Egyptian princess, as you know. He was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, which is to say a lot, because these were the most sophisticated people intellectually in the ancient Near East. That was a human preparation for the job that God was calling him to do. And one day, as you know, he was uh, out taking a walk, and he saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating one of his Israeli friends. And he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. And he must have left his toes sticking out because the crime was discovered, and, and Moses was forced to flee. He fled all the way across the Sinai Desert to the other side, to that area around what we call the Gulf of Aqaba today, or the city of Elat, right at the head of, of the Gulf of, uh, of Aqaba, to the land of the Midianites. Midianites were ancient relatives. They were descended from Abraham uh, through Keturah. And providence brought him to the home of Jethro, the priest of Midian, or as John Dunn would say, that was holy chance. The narrative begins, Jethro was a priest. Whenever you look at a Hebrew text, the thing they put first is almost always the thing that they think most significant. Jethro was a priest. Now understand, he was not a priest of the God of Israel because Israel had no priests at this point. They hadn't been appointed, commissioned. He was a pagan priest. He was an idolater. He lived in a, wor a very dark, demonic world. Uh, archaeologists digging uh, north of a lot in the, uh, a little city called Timna have discovered a Midianite sanctuary. They dated it at this period, and they were able to identify it as a Midianite sanctuary because of the pottery, Midianite pottery that was there. And they discovered a snake, a bronze snake. So they worshipped whatever gods they worshipped under the icon of a, of a snake. That was the cult that, that this man presided uh, over. And it was to that dark home that God brought Moses. You know the story, how as he was traveling across the desert, he came to a well, and there were seven women that were attempting to draw water, and shepherds drove them away. And uh, Moses drove the shepherds away, and, and these seven women took, took them home. And they all happened to be daughters of Jethro, and he found sanctuary there. 
He found a wife. He married Zipporah. She's best known in history because she invented a fastener for women's gowns. <laughs> if, if you believe that, you'll believe anything. <laughs> I, get the, uh, I get the impression that, that Moses' marriage was not good. He did not have a happy marriage, and there's no sadness quite like an unhappy marriage. I would not know for myself, but I know from talking to friends that experience that sort of difficulty. But there's nothing like a difficult, unhappy home to produce intimacy with God if we permit it to do so. And I think that was another of the tools that God used used to shape this man Moses for the task that lay ahead. Uh, he became the father of two boys, Gershom and Eliezer, and he found work as a shepherd, a job that he filled for 40 years. Uh, Egyptians were cattle people, and if you know anything about cattle and cattle women, you know what they think of shepherds and sheep. Sheep, you know, denude the pasture and destroy it for grazing for cattle. They hate shepherds. So, but Moses was forced to follow a band of sheep for 40 years. Again, that was part of the preparation of this man for the task that God had given him to do. You cannot lead anyone through the wilderness until you've been there yourself. Um, Moses was on the backside, that is on the west side of the desert one day, uh, herding his flock of sheep, and that's when he saw the bush that was on fire, that was not consumed. The angel of the Lord spoke to him out of the bush, called him to go back to Egypt to deliver uh, his people. So he goes back to Midian, gathers up his family, travels to Egypt. And on the way, if you remember from past studies, Abraham and, and, and Zipporah got into a bitter, angry argument over Moses' desire to circumcise his son. And Moses sent her away. That, is a technical term for a formal divorce. He sent her back home to her father. And then Moses continued on alone to carry out the work that God had called him to. And then after the exodus, the passage through the sea, they find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai where Jethro locates him. And Moses is reunited with his family. It's significant to me that not one word is said about Moses' reunion with his wife and his sons. And as the story goes, Moses and Jethro retire to Moses' tent where Moses relates all that God has done for Israel. They talk about the plagues. They talk about the passage through the Red Sea. They talk about the tree that turned, turned the bitter waters sweet, uh, about the manna that fell from heaven when they were starving, and about the miraculous deliverance of the Amalekites who struck the rear guard of Israel, the women and children, the elderly, the lame. They were delivered through Moses' prayer. In the words of the text, Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. And the text says, Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things. And I want you to underscore that phrase in your mind, all the good things the Lord had done for Israel. 
Now, my text says Jethro was delighted. I would like to slightly alter that translation because most Hebrew scholars agree that that word should be translated awed or, or to marvel at something, to be awed, to marvel. The, the, the Hebrew word that's translated delight here has a homonym. In other words, there's a Hebrew word that's spelled exactly the way, it's pronounced the same way, it looks exactly like the other word, but it means something entirely different. It means to be awed. And the Septuagint, which is the earliest Greek translation that we have of the Old Testament, translates with the word awed that turns up over and over again in the Gospels to describe the reaction of people to our Lord's presence and to his teaching. They were amazed at him. Luke tells a wonderful story about a man who was paralytic and uh, Jesus happened to pass by and he, and he said to him, your sins are forgiven. And uh, the, the people that were in the crowd scoffed. Who can forgive sins? They said, but God. Jesus said, now look, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you might know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. The man rolled up his pallet and walked out. And Luke says, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. What they saw was the goodness of God. See, that's what Jesus came to do, to show us the goodness of God. And it is so good, it is utterly amazing. Jethro's response, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, all the gods that I worshipped before. Oh, I have my entire pantheon, the plethora of gods that I worship. God is greater than all of them. So here's the point of the whole story. Jethro came in from the cold. So he came to faith. He entered into the believing community. He became a believer. As uh, the old Southern Baptist preachers uh, used to say in my youth, he got saved. <laughs> he found salvation. Then we're told that Jethro, mother, uh, Moses, mother, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. He worshipped, you see. He not only entered into faith, but he began to worship with Moses, Aaron, the elders, the leadership of Israel. He entered into the sacrifice. He shared in the sacrifice of the Lamb, who prefigures the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He ate the manna, which is a symbol of the bread of heaven, our Lord Jesus, come down from heaven. You see, he became a believer. That's the whole point. This pagan man came out of darkness into the light. In Paul's words, he turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. That's the point of the story. That's why it's here, you see. Now, uh, the, the rest of the account of Jethro is fairly sketchy because the, the point's been made. He's going to do something very significant that you'll read about next week that actually became the foundation of, of, of modern-day Israel's judicial system, their Knesset and, and uh, the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day. had a, had a powerful Im impact on, on Israel. But in terms of the point of the story, the important thing is that this man became a believer and then, we don't know for sure, but according to tradition, he went back to his own country 
to preach the good news that God is good. And Moses invited him to accompany Israel through the wilderness. And, and, and Jethro declined. And he went back to his own people. It's like the man from whom Jesus cast, a legion, cast out a legion of, of demons. He wanted to follow Jesus in that case. But Jesus sent him back and he went back. And listen to these words. He told them what good things God had done for him. And that's what Jethro did. He went back to his Midianite countrymen, and he proclaimed the good news that God is good. And believe me, in a pagan world, that is good news because the gods of the pagans were dark, dangerous gods. No one could trust them. They're evil. Demon possession was, was part of their, demon worship was part of their cult. He was delivered from all of that and brought into the light, and, and that's the message they went back to preach. And in that region today, even today, Arabs refer to him as Shuav. It's an Arabic word that's cognate to the, to the word you find all through the Old Testament. Shuv, that means to repent, to turn around. In the Song of Songs, uh, the groom says to his bride when she's dancing, Shuvi, Shuvi, he says, turn around, turn around, turn around. It's that word. Uh, our brother Lee, when he got up here and said, repent, that's shuv. See, Lee? The prophets were giving them a shuv in the right direction. And, and, and Jethro goes back to Midian, and he becomes known as the one who turned us around, who brought us out of idolatry and into the light. Later we find a group of Midianites dwelling within the community of faith up near the Sea of Galilee. In fact, uh, Remember the story of Jael, the, the, this woman with a hammer? Uh, her husband was Heber, who was a descendant of Jethro. And uh, Jethro's tomb is uh, located along the Sea of Galilee uh, today. Now, what attracted Jethro? He was awed to hear about the good things the Lord had done. See, it was the goodness of God that drew him in. He was won by the love of, of God, the crazy, unconditional love of God, who, one who loves us despite what we've done in the past, regardless of what we may be doing in the present or anything we will ever do. He cannot stop loving us. That's the way he is. And that's what draws people in. See, Paul says it's the goodness of God that draws people to repentance. So why is this story here? Well, Jethro is a prototype of all the Gentiles that will be gathered in to Israel. Uh, 700 years later, Isaiah wrote, this was the passage that was read to you earlier, many people will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. This is 700 years later. This is Isaiah, but it, but Jethro is an, is an archetype, a prototype of this, of the flood of Gentiles that will, will come to Israel looking for the good news, you see. Uh, it's a little vignette, a miniature picture. As far as I've been able, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I've been able to determine, Jethro is the first Gentile to come in out of the cold. 
uh, as you know, from a biblical point of view, there are only two kinds of people. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. And to the, to the Jews were given the unique opportunity to contain the oracles of God. They had the prophets and the word of God. And to them, the Messiah was given. See, if you go all the way back to, to chapter 3 of Genesis and you read about the fall, this terrible debacle that plunged the whole race into sin, and immediately God sets out to bring salvation to the world. He says to the woman, your seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. In other words, some man is going to come along who will save us someday. And that message was given to Israel. See, that's the goodness of God. That it doesn't matter how badly you've messed up. God is in the business of, of saving you. Okay? And that was the message that, that Israel was, was given. And it's the message that we're given. Because we are the new Israel. See, Paul makes that very clear. Today, the church, I don't mean this building or this people, but the universal church is the Israel of God composed of both Jew and Gentile. What God does with Israel in the future, I'm not, I don't know. I'm agnostic about that. But I know that for right now, Jew and Gentile have been, Gentile have been bound into one body, which is his church, and it is our business to proclaim to the world the goodness, the graciousness. Of God, Peter puts it this way: "You, here he's writing to Jews and Gentiles in the church in you know, what now is Turkey. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the goodness of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light." Isn't that a remarkable summary of the story of Jethro? Called out of darkness into his wonderful light. And that's the message that we convey. Now, I ask you honestly, is, is this our message? Is this what the world is hearing from us? Are we emphasizing not the goodness of God, but the badness of people? See, that's not the gospel. People already know they're bad. See, even Jesus said, I did not come to condemn, but that the whole world might be saved. See, the good news is that you don't have to remain in your badness because of the goodness of God. But unfortunately, we, we have begun to deliver what a friend of mine calls bad dog messages. You know what I mean? You had an abortion. Bad. Okay. You're gay. Bad. Uh, you're one of those uh, secular, godless liberals. Bad. Instead of proclaiming to people the goodness, the kindness, the compassion, the mercy, the forgiveness of God. If you walk into Barnes & Noble today, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of Sam Harris's new book. It's called Letter to a Christian Nation. It will shock you. This is his perception of what, what Christians are like. And he begins with this word. Thousands of people have written to tell me that I'm wrong not to believe in God. The most hostile of these communications have come from Christians. This is ironic, as Christians generally imagine that no faith imparts the virtues of love and forgiveness more effectively than their own. 
The truth is that many who claim to be transformed by Christ's love are deeply, even murderously intolerant. And then he goes on to say the Bible must teach that because they quote chapter and verse for their intolerance. I have to ask myself and I have to ask you, is this a message we're sending to people in the face of Jesus' statement, I did not come to condemn, but to save. Uh, we hear a, a good deal of talk these days about the so-called emerging culture, and I've read some in this area. Postmoderns are often referred to. These people are suspicious of hard, hard data. They don't believe in objective reality. They make up their own reality as, as they go along. Words are the enemy, they say, because words have been used to oppress so words are invalid. How can, we, how can we preach? How can we proclaim? How can we evangelize? How can we talk to people? When the very means of communication and words are vitiated, how, how are we going to do that? I'll tell you how. We've got to love them. We've got to show them the goodness of God in our lives. And see, this is what the world is looking for. It's that old Burt Bacharach song. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. You think people don't feel that? Jesus predicted that because of the wickedness of many, the love of many will grow cold. And that's what we're experiencing in our world. See, all, all these people that are desperately looking for something are basically looking for love. Uh, yeah, remember that old eagle, Don Henley, a line in one of his songs, How can love survive in such a graceless age? You see, that's, that's what so many are saying. So what's the answer? It's the love of Christ in me <clears throat> and in you. It's love that breaks the hardest heart. Uh, speaking of Barnes & Noble, I was in Barnes & Noble recently. I was flipping through a, a uh, coffee table book of uh, New York Times cartoons. I love uh, Don Adams, apartment Charles Adams cartoons. And there's one that depicts an elderly man standing in his pajamas and robe at his apartment door. And he had just secured the door for the night with uh, four locks, a bolt across the front and across the back, and two deadbolts and a chain latch. And only after the lock was fastened did he as he looked down and he sees a small white envelope stuck underneath the door and on the envelope is a large sticker in the shape of a heart his, his private security system had been broken into by a valentine it's very perceptive it's very perceptive it's just love that, that breaks hard hearts not condemnation so we don't need to tell people they're bad. We, we be, need to be discerning and know the difference between good and evil. But we don't need to tell people they're bad. What we need to tell them is that God is good. And they can be delivered from their badness by his love. You want a, you want a contemporary example? This, this thing in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It has stunned us all. This man, Charles Roberts, walked into, the, into that uh, little school, Nickel Mines School, and slaughtered those little children. 
And you would expect revenge. The harshest thing they said is that he has a problem with his heart. And they even invited his, his widow to come to the uh, funeral of one of these little girls. It's an echo of Jesus' word from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know, the hardest people in the world are media people. And I have seen some of those people break into tears when they tried to describe what was, what was going on in that, in that place. Uh, in Taylor Fleming, in, in one of her essays, referred to this as grace in the face of enormous grief. She said exactly right. How are we going to reach him? We'd show him. There's no other way except to love him as they are because God does so that he can change him into what they ultimately want to be. See, we're the only Jesus that some people ever see. John said, as he is, so are we in this world. Uh, the old uh, Catholic writers used to refer to Christians as alter Christus, Latin phrase, alter, second Christus Christ, the second Christ, you're a second Christ. They should see the love of Christ in me and in you, wherever we go. Now, this is the time that, uh, you, you know, you'd usually hear a stem winding halftime locker room pep talk, go out there and win one for the Gipper. <laughs> but I'm not going to do that. Because it would be wrong to do so. Let me, let, me, let me tell you what I think is a true fact. The only way to show the love of Christ is to experience it. And the only way to experience it is to spend time in his presence. See, our problem is that we get first things second and second things first. And whenever you get second things first, you not only miss the first things, you miss the second things. See, it's this Mary Martha thing. Uh, Luke's story has so much poignant, poignancy. You know, Martha in the kitchen banging pots and pans around, you know, she, Angry because her sister Mary has gone into the other room to listen to Jesus. Mary had wandered into the family room and Jesus and the disciples were sitting there. And Jesus probably said, okay, guys, move over, move over, let, let Mary sit down. And she did. She was listening to Jesus teach. And, and the longer Martha thought about that, the more torque she got because there's no one in the kitchen to help her. And she's getting more and more angry. She was storming into the family room. Lord, she says, make Mary help me. And our Lord said, Martha, Martha, you're anxious about many things. Really, only one thing is necessary, and she has chosen the better part. What was she doing? Sitting at his feet, absorbing his love, listening to him. You see, when, when we... When we absorb his love, then it very naturally begins to flow out to others. See, sharing the good news is not a matter of getting your patter down pat, learning a, a scheme of evangelism and going out and, and laying it on people. It's a matter of knowing how good God is, knowing how much you're loved, knowing how compassionate he has been in your life. Then it just naturally comes out. It spills out others. You don't even have to try. You don't have to look for opportunities to share your faith. They just, they just happen. Now, I, I want to leave you with uh, 
Three things, and I'm done. It's a very short illustration from the life of Abraham. It's a quote from Mother Teresa and a parable. Okay. Abraham uh, was a pagan. He lived in uh, Ur of the Chaldees, a very dark place. God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees to Canaan, which was the darkest place on the face of the earth, and he blessed him. He called Abraham into a relationship with himself, and then he said to Abraham, Be a blessing. I have blessed you. I have brought salvation to you. Now be a blessing to the people in Canaan. One of the most wretched places on the face of the earth. What did Abraham do? Read the story. Wherever he went, he put up a tent, and he built a little altar, and he worshipped. That's all we're told he did. He worshipped in the presence of God And because he experienced the love and the grace of God, he was able to impart it to others. Now a quote from Mother Teresa. Henry Nguyen was a professor at Yale, a Catholic Christian, and uh, struggling with his desire to have an impact on those jaded, blasé, extremely intelligent young men and women. And he went to her to ask, what can I do to be more effective in my ministry at Yale University? You know what she told him? Henry, she said, spend one hour a day in devotion to Christ and you'll be all right. Now, she wasn't being legalistic about the one hour. That's not the point. It's when we spend time in God's presence that we're all right. Things begin to happen to us. We begin to change. We get softer. We get more compassionate. We get more kindly. Even our faces change so that we begin to manifest the love of Christ wherever we go. So we just have to spend time in his presence. There's no other way. Now a parable. As some of you know, our house backs up to Winstead Park, and, and I walk there in the mornings. It's a third of a mile track, and uh, I walk counterclockwise. Every normal person does. <laughs> And uh, at the same time, there is a woman uh, who's a little older than I, her late 70s probably, who walks clockwise, which means that every 180 degrees we meet, okay, 180 degrees around the circle. She's about so tall, a little bitty woman. She's a brown as a beetle nut. Uh, she has the merriest eyes I've ever seen, beautiful eyes, brown eyes. I think she's Basque. I don't even know her name. Uh, wrinkled up face. When she smiles, it just wrinkles up more. She's one of these people who when they smile, I mean, everything smiles. Her eyes smile, her mouth, her ears even smile. She has Alzheimer's. Uh, Whenever she meets me in the morning, the first thing she says is, have I sung, sung my song? She's very chipper. She says, have I sung my song to you today? And I say, no. Sing it to me. So she see, sings a little song about the sun. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to sing it, so get along. <laughs> she sings a song about the sun coming up. The love song to the sun, I guess. And then she raises her hand, almost as though it's a benediction, and she says, have a good day. And she begins to walk, and of course we meet on the other side of the track. 
And she says, have I sung my song to you today? Because she doesn't remember. And one time I said, I'll never do this again. One time I said yes, and her whole face just fell. So <laughs> I don't say that. I, 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 I say, uh, and I don't say no, that would be, be a lie. So I, I say, sing it to me again. And so she does. She sings it to me again. Every every time I meet her, I, you know, have, have, have you heard my song? Sing it to me. So she sings it. I say, thank you. She raises her hand in benediction. She moves on. <laughs> it's wonderful. She has become for me both a parable and a prayer. A parable of the kind of people we ought to be, just moving through life inobtrusively, not you don't have to make a big deal out of anything, just loving people and singing a love song about the son of righteousness who has come to bring healing in his wings. That's my parable, and that's my prayer for both myself and for you. Let's pray. My, how we need that touch. We can be so, so indifferent people that are struggling in the darkness are so angry at them. Two things that were never characteristic of of your touch upon their lives. We would like to be able to reach people as you did. Help us to win the right to be heard by the deep love that we have for them. But Lord, may we experience in a unique way in coming months your goodness, the love that you have for us, the compassion, the mercy, the forgiveness, the goodness that we have received. For these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.